Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Angelina Thupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. On today's episode of Feral Visions, we're talking about anti-imperialist feminist approaches to countering the U.S. military-industrial complex. We know that the U.S. military is both the greatest polluter and purveyor of violence on the planet. So where's the critique of militarism in most U.S. feminisms today, let alone mobilization against it? Have some folks been so distracted by fashion and Beyonce that they forgot to check their privilege as U.S. citizens and stop this war machine? To support our learning about these topics, I had the tremendous fortune of being in dialogue with Dr. Margot Okazawa-Ray. She shares why militarism is a feminist issue, connecting foreign policy to domestic policy, and her personal connection to this issue. Professor Okazawa-Ray also addresses why we have to take seriously the category of nation in our analyses in the U.S., especially for U.S. citizens. That includes you, U.S. women of color. Furthermore, Dr. Okazawa-Ray explains how she and the other co-founders of the Kombahi River Collective, who popularized the idea of intersectionality way back in 1974, always understood that concept as anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, and materially grounded. Finally, we explore why oppressed folks need to be honest about our privileges, Palestinian liberation, and what genuine security looks like. Dr. Okazawa-Ray's work focuses on militarism, armed conflict, and violence against women. In her research, she examines the connections between militarism, economic globalization, and impacts on local and migrant women in South Korea who live and work around U.S. military bases. She's also begun working with women in militarized and post-conflict areas of Sierra Leone, Liberia, Ghana, and Nigeria, where they're exploring the role of feminist research and activism, policy change, and women's empowerment. 
A related interest is making the connections between the military-industrial complex and prison-industrial complex, both that affect working class and poor youth and communities of color in the U.S. That is, making connections, theoretical and practical, between foreign policy and domestic policy. She's currently a professor in the School of Human and Organizational Development at Fielding Graduate University and a professor emerita at San Francisco State University. She received her doctorate from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She's the author of Amer Asian Children of GI Town, A Legacy of U.S. Militarism in South Korea, with Gwen Kirk, co-editor of Women's Lives, Multicultural Perspectives, and with Julia Sudbury, activist scholarship, anti-racism, feminism, and social change. Her latest publication with Amina Mama is Militarism, Conflict, and Women's Activism in the Global Era, Challenges and Prospects for Women in Three West African Contexts. Margot's also on the international board of Peace Women Across the Globe, based in Bern, Switzerland, and Durabong, My Sister's Place in South Korea. She lived for three years in Palestine and worked with the Women's Center for Legal Aid and Counseling in Ramallah, from where she's worked on an oral history project of Palestinians of African descent living in the West Bank and Gaza. Finally, Dr. Okazawa Ray was a founding member of the legendary black feminist lesbian socialist organization, the Combahee River Collective, and is on the board of directors of the Highlander Center. Well, thank you so much for gifting us with your time and energy today. I'm sincerely appreciative. How are you doing tonight? I'm pretty jazzed, actually. I'm uh, attending a meeting of an organization called the Peace Women Across the Globe, which uh, started in 2003, actually, um, where a Swiss parliamentarian named Ruth Gabi Vermont had this idea that we should nominate a thousand women for the Nobel Peace Prize um, formally uh, as a way to challenge this kind of individualist way of thinking about peacemaking and to challenge conventional definitions of peace that have only or mainly to do with um, absence of armed conflict. You know, we made the nomination in 2005, and of course we didn't get it, we didn't expect to get it, that wasn't the main point of it. But since then, we've been together meeting regularly, and we now have a network um, of women feminist activists from all the continents talking about, you know, how to keep challenging militarism and uh, violations of human rights and women's rights. Um, and to say that, you know, there are thousands and thousands of women doing this peace work all over the world. And that includes everything from fighting for ecological justice, challenging global climate destruction, to, you know, the more um, conventional women, quote, women's work of uh, violence against women. Right. So it's this amazing network. We've been meeting annually to think about, you know, what kind of programming to have and what kind of transnational collaborations we should engage in. So I'm in Bern. I'm recording this uh, from Bern, Switzerland right now, and meeting with women uh, from India and Europe, of course, but also Colombia, uh, Hong Kong, 
Fiji, uh, just to name some some countries. And also what's important about this particular meeting is that there was a, one of our uh, international board member colleagues who was denied a visa. She is Rwandan working and living in Mali. And um, I think it's kind of emblematic of the ways, the tough ways that um, especially activists are having to it could be, we don't know for sure, but it could be a kind of um, a challenging women human rights defenders, you know, from coming from places that are considered dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know, you know, we have more examples of that elsewhere. But anyway, mm-hmm. all that to say, that's what I'm doing here in mm-hmm. uh, Switzerland. And it's, you know, been a long-term uh, commitment of mine. And it fits the other work I'm doing around uh, militarism and military violence. Mm. That sounds incredible. My goodness, I can only imagine uh, the stories that are gathered in that space with all of the peoples converging at an event and doing work like that. And thank you so much for that work that you're doing and then your legacy of work in your life more broadly. I have such tremendous gratitude for the kind of foundations that you've set, especially for future generations of organizers and activists to deepen our understanding of genuine peace and security, especially from feminist perspectives and from peoples Mm -hmm. from the global south, so to speak. On that note, a lot of our listeners may, especially many, say, young women of color in the U.S., uh, have been socialized, say, to associate feminism more with pop culture, with fashion, uh, with makeup and the like, and maybe not quite so much with, say, a critique of U.S. imperialism or a critique of the military industrial complex. Uh, to take it back a little bit to get going, could you share why militarism is a feminist issue as you understand it? Yeah. First of all, I, I must say that you know, how you just described young feminists, it's it's a little bit shocking, you know, Mm. like feminism as pop culture or something, you know, very popular in some circles of kind of a popular position. But obviously the the kinds of things you described um, uh, aren't really, you know, the ways I think about feminism. So it's good for me to learn you know, about the way younger feminists are thinking about what it means to be feminist. Um, You know, for me, the commitment to militarism really grows out of an understanding that, first of all, that uh, militarism and armed conflicts are always about resources, right? It's not, despite what the media tried to tell us, it's not, you know, one ethnic group fighting another one or one religious group fighting another one. And we never know, first of all, what they're fighting about. It's just these crazy groups, you know, at each other, communalism or racism or something. And so when I came to understand that militarism armed conflict are always about resources, right? I had then to, you know, ask myself the question is, but of whose resources, you know, how do resources get distributed? And, you know, what does power have to do with all of that? Um, And then even in communities, in marginalized communities that are, you know, fighting for scarce resources, just say, for example, land, 
there's a lot of land grabbing that's going on in particularly countries of the global south where transnational corporations are coming in and taking land for various purposes a lot about extraction or about cash crops like growing soybeans or something even in the case of land struggles that result in militarism once the conflict is resolved let's say or at least negotiated and despite the fact that women are often the leaders of these struggles at the end they're left out of any kind of real access to the resources that they were important in struggling for right and so you see these these two layers there's the materialist struggle in this example about land um, but then you know the uh, patri then patriarchy kicks in right about who should own the land or who has the prerogative to own the land or lay any claims to it and so you see this kind of um, multi-layered situation where on the one hand men and women could be struggling for, for around the same issues but at the end of the day you know the women are left out of it and you see this in uh, national liberation struggles where women have fought side by side uh, and then you know post colonization you know it's kind of go to back into the home or so and so it's pretty consistent you know and it's a phenomenon right because it's structural it's about traditional patriarchal cultures and patriarchal you know power relationships so that's a long way to say that any of these social phenomena that I'm interested in and probably your students you know are always gendered and they're always raced and classed and there's always the element of nation which I'll talk a little bit about in a minute um, and so you can't just look at an issue as if none of those things are important and then you know additionally or by contrast I should say sometimes we look at identity struggles without looking at the material base right so you can't just talk about identities and not talk about for example the question of why do identities matter right and not just in a personal sense right so concretely identities matter because they may have an impact on what kind of financial aid you get in college or you know your access to jobs things like that right so there's always for me a kind of a, a material foundation to the problems that is about things and money and resources uh, and economic relations as well as all the social categories right they, they go together mm -hmm. absolutely so long-winded to say absolutely Oh, another one other thing that I think is important, and that is, militarism and armed conflict are feminist issues because, when in kind of outright situations of military violence and armed conflicts, you find across the board disproportionate impacts on uh, women in ways that um, they constitute disproportionate numbers of displaced people. 
they're responsible for taking care of children and elderly and handicapped people, you know, all the kind of taking care of functions, they have to do it irrespective of what else is going on, right? So they have the burden of facing uh, the, you know, the militia or the military that's coming in while they're trying to take care of the people around them as well as themselves. Right? Mm. Also, feminist um, uh, militarism is a feminist issue because you find in various places women are combatants too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you obviously see that in the in the U.S. in the state militaries, right? But you also see it in guerrilla movements, in militias. They're combatants, and in some cases, as I've written in uh, with Amina Mama on the West African case, you know, they are entrepreneurs who benefit from, you know, uh, running guns or selling food or something, right? So mm-hmm. it's complicated. So I'm not arguing that women are essentially peaceful and blah, blah. No, that's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But it's important to look at the ways in which patriarchy and male dominance operates in these situations of militarization and armed conflicts. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, could you share with our listeners a little bit about your personal entry point into becoming interested in these issues, the way that the personal is political and the political is personal, so to speak, around this topic for you and your lived experience? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's kind of... Um, I don't know if it's irony or poetic justice or something, but it's something like that, you know, where how I was, the context I was born into was um, right after World War II. My father was part of the U.S. occupation forces in Japan. My mom was a, a Japanese woman. And, you know, by any kind of um, conventional mores and stuff, you know, they were never supposed to be together and I was never supposed to have been born. So just looking at my own history, one of the things I've come to terms with is maybe I was born into that situation so that I could be part of helping do something about armed conflicts and wars, you know, and thinking about uh, situations you know, much more transnationally and across race and class and gender and all those boundaries. So thinking about myself almost fundamentally as a border crosser and not in any kind of high pollutant way or anything, but just that that's been the reality of my existence. Uh, in 1994, I was a Fulbright uh, researcher in South Korea. And my project had to do with uh, exploring or investigating what Korean people in Korea learned about African-American people and how did they learn that. And the impetus for that was there were these big conflicts in urban areas like L.A., New York, Boston, D.C., where Korean merchants, Korean immigrant merchants, were having serious conflicts with African-American community people. And I couldn't believe that, you know, they just came, you know, they had these racist attitudes. And uh, there were young people killed, you know, in these owners and young people. So I went to Korea. I was lucky to get the Fulbright. 
And um, what I discovered right away was this huge military presence in Korea. And at the time, this was 1994, there were over 100 U.S. bases, full-blown bases, and military installations, and they could be like little radar stations or something, but over 100 of them in a country that's about one-fourth the size of the state of California. So you can tell, you can see how concentrated, you know, that presence was. Anyway, I had no idea about that, you know, none whatsoever. And so I got there and I noticed the presence and then I noticed something which is I don't, I didn't speak Korean. I don't speak very much right now. I spoke none. I'm pretty fluent in Japanese. So one thing I would communicate with local people, but local people of a particular generation who had lived under Japanese occupation. And so it's like a ton of bricks. Here I am, there's a huge army there and you know talking to these um old people in japanese here are women called black japanese and american and you know thinking like oh my goodness like here i am kind of embodying two imperial nations and seeing the impacts and the privileges of being connected to both right so my blue passport could get me into places that, you know, being a regular Korean citizen or anybody else could not get, you know, get them into. So that was a really important kind of an awakening and coming to understand the importance of the category of nation, sort of what it means to be connected to in the first place. And then, you know, more contemporarily, the kind of colonial relations that U.S. has with Korea and the ways in which um, U.S. corporations, you know, in many parts of the world kind of dominate the economic scene, right? So it was just one of those awakenings that completely changed the trajectory of my life. And I think one of the most profound things about that was seeing only the conditions in the U.S., I think, as women of color, we don't even have to think about nation. Mm. We think about racism, we think about Mm -hmm. sexism, Mm -hmm. but we don't really have to think about U.S. imperialism, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what it means to occupy a dominant category. That's the category we don't have to think about. So we can think about marginalization in other ways, but not about this category of nation. Mm -hmm. And so pretty much since then, I've been really you know, challenging us in the U.S. to include centrally in our analyses of everything the category of nation and why that matters. So that was an important, like, I can't tell you how profound that particular shift was. And uh, after that, I was talking to a a very good friend of mine and a co-author of some of my writings, Gwyn Kirk, uh, who's a white British woman, and, you know, she and I started talking about militarism, and she's been involved in this work for much longer than I have. Um, she said, well, you know, the same thing is happening in the Philippines, and then we found out about Okinawa and Japan, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so we had our first 
meeting in 1997 of what has become the International Network of Women Against Militarism mm -hmm. that deals specifically with um, opposing the U.S. military in uh, the Pacific, places like Guam or Guahan, as the local people call their land, to Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and then all the countries that I just named. And then the important thing is kind of connecting domestic policy to foreign policy. Mm -hmm. So when so much of the military, uh, the U.S. budget is spent on the military, there's much less money for schools. And when so much of the budget, state budgets and local budgets are spent on prisons, there's less money for schools. So, you know, kids in rural areas and urban areas had the option of going to prison or joining the military, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that seems to, that's how it seems to shake out. Um, and I've heard just even, you know, as um, recently as a couple of days ago, a woman say, you know, I joined the military because I couldn't go to, I didn't have the money to go to college. Mm -hmm. right? Right. So two things here. I know that was a long-winded <laughs> comment, but one is recognize the importance of the category of nation. And two is making the connections between domestic policy and foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a connection between this the U.S. spending, you know, over $2 billion a day on military, military efforts and not enough money for kids, for kids, working class kids to go to college. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those are kids of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for naming those connections with clarity. I was actually just having a dialogue last week with a dear brother who's quite active in BLM on the East Coast, Black Lives Matter, who was seeing the notion of citizenship privilege for folks in the U.S. as somehow sort of abstract. And we need only talk about right settler colonialism, let alone any of these issues that you bring up to reveal exactly right how sort of privileged it is to be coming from a place of positionality to for that to be theoretical for you right mm -hmm. to not have to mm -hmm. think about those things in terms of the material conditions of your everyday survivance or mm -hmm. lack thereof right mm -hmm. and it makes me think of what you were getting into earlier about diving more deeply into how we're capable of understanding this notion of intersectionality that's being talked about in some ways that are a little superficial today. Yes. Uh, so could you talk a little bit actually more about that, please? So say, when you talk about the need for us to understand intersectionality in a way that's say more materially grounded, that's anti-imperialist, a little bit more mm -hmm. about what you mean when you say that, please. Yeah, okay. And also just one other point is that, you know, if we just take, for example, the situation of Liberia, right, which is a country that was basically colonized by formerly enslaved black people from the U.S., mm -hmm. right? And they ended up becoming the elites. Yeah. And so the 20-year-long civil war with Charles Taylor leading it, mm -hmm. he was what was referred to as an Americo-Liberian, right. right, which is the privileged group. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, thinking about there are these certain processes that lead to certain outcomes, regardless of who are the bodies occupying, right? And so we can't just say, you know, this group of 
people are innocent and the other group are guilty. You know, one is oppressor and one's oppressed. That given the right set of circumstances, and I use the Liberia and Sierra Leonean examples, we could just as well be colonizers too, mm-hmm. right? Because it's fundamentally about structures of power, the relationship to the colonized land resources, right? And making sure that the indigenous people are put in their place structurally, legally, and all the ways to keep them in their place to ensure your, quote, rightful place as the hegemons, I guess, the people on top. So that's something just I just want to flag. So, you know, my understanding about intersectionality is, and as you say, Anjali, that it's just, in my opinion, just been so diluted that now it just seems it's about multiple identities. Yeah, I can be this and that and this and that, and, you know, nothing is anything and anything can be something, right? I think when I was part of the Combahee River Collective and we talked about our experiences and the things we observed, it wasn't just that we occupied a certain, we embodied a certain set of characteristics, you know, black, feminist, lesbian, woman, you know, etc. But that we understood all those things in relation to imperialism. Uh, we were anti-imperialist. We thought of ourselves as socialists, right? And so we understood that implicitly this category of nation purposefully critiqued capitalism, Right. And I think now, I think the way that intersectionality is being discussed now is troubling uh, in two ways. One, I already talked about, you know, multiple identities. But the other is that I think many people are still leaving out the privilege also that we have, Mm -hmm. even as we embody certain categories that may marginalize us, right? Mm-hmm. So some of us have class privilege or, you know, all of us have privilege of nation, right? Formal citizenship that if we were to leave this country, we would we would experience it, mm-hmm. right? And so thinking about the relationship between privilege and disadvantage, not just multiple disadvantages, Thank you. Right, or intersecting disadvantages. Because I think it's disingenuous, even Mm -hmm. as we talk about our lived experience, if we only talk about the ways in which we've been marginalized, Mm -hmm. right, without saying, especially for people like me, as a, you know, definitely middle class academic with all kinds of economic privileges, and then, you know, having the blue passport that gets me, I can go to most places without a visa for example, mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. questions asked, mm-hmm. right? Right. So that's, I think, that's an important understanding of intersectionality that I would like people who are listening to this to understand. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that then we're all the same, you know, um, or anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the relations to structures of power are definitely different, uh, so the other thing that's important about contextuality, uh, uh, about intersectionality is that context is everything, right? So in certain settings, uh, my experience has been that certain disadvantages and privileges appear. So like in a just completely random public setting, nobody's going to ask me, oh, you 
must have gotten your, you know, doctor from Harvard. Like that's just not anything that anybody's going to come out with, right? Mm -hmm. They might see that I'm a woman of color first. I might be treated accordingly. So in another context, something else would appear, right? Mm -hmm. Subjectively speaking, though, my experiences of it, I know that I've experienced all these different ways of being mistaken identity, of uh, given special treatment, you know, just because of my class background or I fly a million miles and so I get all kinds of upgrades. You know, and that's nothing that I've done, right? Um, and then having said that, there are also times when people say, so what are you, you know, looking at me like, what are you doing in this section of the airplane? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. part of it is thinking structurally about the advantages and disadvantages and thinking subjectively about them, how we experience mm-hmm. those. And like I was saying earlier, the categories that give us dominance, we don't think about. We, you know, we think mostly about the ways in which we're marginalized. And so Mm -hmm. I think any good learning experience should help us see both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Most of us, most of us are both, right? In in one way or another, Mm -hmm. I would say, at least most people listening to this recording Mm -hmm. right yeah I mean there's uh, such a cruelty especially right post the sort of revocation of DACA last week for U.S. citizens to be acting like having papers doesn't mean a thing I mean Mm -hmm. it's just um Mm -hmm. precisely as you named so disingenuous the kind of performance that is expected in certain politicized radical progressive spaces Um, precisely, especially for certain folks, and especially um, to name with more specificity, women of color, right? Mm -hmm. It would be strange or peculiar for folks for me to introduce myself, right, as, say, a well-educated, temporarily able-bodied, right, English-speaking U.S. citizen, because that's not Mm -hmm. the kind of, right, performance of identity that is centralizing for some of us in ways that uh, it may not be comfortable for some folks to hear speaking this frankly about it, but it can feel opportunistic. And it needs to be Mm -hmm. named, actually, especially in terms of, right, careerism in certain institutions like the academic industrial complex, right? It can actually be careerist and opportunistic and a performance that may have never even tried to be, right, centralizing collective liberation for all of us. And so I'm so grateful to hear you naming that. I can't wait for our movement cultures to make that turn immediately, I hope. Yeah, and I don't know how immediate that can be. And, you know, the other thing I was thinking about is what would happen if we told the history of the U.S. from the West Coast and not just consistently from the East Coast, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So if you start from the East Coast and, and even from the East Coast, it the narration is about white colonization and black slavery, the genocide and displacement and colonization of Indians has, you know, just gets left out also, right? Even even when we African-American people are telling the story, right? We start with slavery, mm-hmm. not with 
genocide. Mm -hmm. So if we started the history from the West Coast with the colonization, you know, by Spain of the indigenous people and then the U.S. and Spain having this, you know, uh, battle and the U.S., you know, taking over California and, you know, all that, right? If we start from there, because that started before uh, the, the colonization by Spain and the genocide of, you know, indigenous people started before 1619. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it started long before the, the founding of this country, right? Mm-hmm. And so what would happen? How would we need to think about race and land, uh, all those things, depending on where we started, which side of the continent we started the story? I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah. And would that help us challenge the black-white racial paradigm? Thank you. And, you know, it's not even close to neutral how divisive, right, the storytelling and the historiographies, right, or the wordsmithing is around this when it comes to us being socialized to perform our identities in certain ways that are divisive, that are more likely Mm -hmm. to be competitive as opposed to cooperative, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of really trying to centralize a solidarity praxis, getting unwittingly hustled into playing the oppression Olympics with one another. Mm -hmm. Who benefits from that in the long run and who doesn't, right? It's not our communities. Uh, And so, you know, there being really urgent political needs we could be more effectively attending to if we were more intentional about the way that we're telling history, the way that we're storytelling mm-hmm. around all of this, for sure, especially decentralizing whiteness, communities mm-hmm. of color, right, connecting around our shared histories, particularly shared histories of struggle, and also being honest about disconnect and division for sure as well, but mm-hmm. in different kinds of ways, not just repeating the same old history. Yeah, exactly. You know, what do we, what questions do we need to be asking about our history and histories that will help us get a more complex understanding of, you know, various phenomena now, immigration, the, the kind of the right, uh, rise of fascism in this country, white nationalism, the tensions between black and brown folks. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot, lot, lot. Uh, to be understood in a more complicated way, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know that one of the areas of this conversation that is so frequently left out, and again, it's not even close to neutral why it's left out, but is the role of the U.S. in Israeli settler colonialism, so Palestine and Palestinian liberation, it being very controversial in some spaces, especially where there is a sort of Zionist foothold of sometimes suppressing whose liberation struggles get to count and whose don't. And I know that you have spent a number of years both in Palestine and then over the course of your life doing solidarity work with communities in Palestine. Could you share a little bit about how you understand the responsibility of especially U.S. citizens to be taking seriously Palestinian liberation, especially, right, for folks that might be taxpaying dollars, so literally, right, funding the Israeli military project that, you know, we just had an action resisting Urban Shield last week here in the Bay Area that, that are so deeply interconnected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just more generally, I think, 
at this uh, meeting I'm at here with the peace women across the globe, one of the topics that, you know, we raised is how do we need to think about, we often talk about South-South relations and we need to encourage that, but we don't, we haven't really talked about North-North stuff and what do progressive people in the north need to understand about our responsibilities and accountabilities for what the corporations governments are doing that most of us never even see the impacts right so that's kind of a general point and specific example of that is you know thinking about israel palestine it's so interesting you're asking me this question because i just came from that part of the world, and I was coming through Ben Gurion Airport in uh, Tel Aviv, and there's a huge kind of um, 120 year anniversary exaltation of Zionism, and you know all the ways that Israel is the democracy. They have women's rights, minorities have rights. It was this complete. It was kind of breathtaking. Um, I'm sure if you went on the web and you would see these incredible narratives, you know, of, you know, people without a place and, you know, all that that we're pretty familiar with. Just, you know, being there, having been there on a day-to-day basis for the last 12 years, it's clear, I'm clear about a couple of things. One is... There would be no occupation without U.S. support. That's right. And by U.S., I mean the U.S. state and, you know, U.S. people, individuals. Yeah. Um, And that includes, you know, like Christian organizations too, not just Jewish Mm -hmm. organizations, but, you know, some of the Christians think of Israel as the, this place that needs to be protected in the same ways that the, the Jews do. You know, don't think about the Palestinian people's struggle. So there's the state. There are certain institutions, like certain uh, Christian institutions. Then there are also individuals. So on more than one occasion, uh, I, I, I went to a Hadassah Hospital, which is, you know, the hospital in Jerusalem you know you walk in and it's pretty nice place and what you see pretty early on in the lobby is this list of donors you know who have contributed to the hospital and you see where they're located and so many of them are from the U.S. so many you know I wish I could take pictures so there's the individual donation the individual Jewish people's connections to the state of Israel, and then all the institutional things that I mentioned already, right? Without those, there's just no, it's not, it's not possible. And embedded in all three of those is a kind of an ideological support, right? And a narrative that, that says, you know, for example, Palestinian mothers, you know, birth young terrorists mm-hmm. and Israeli mothers birth, you know, martyrs or, you know, uh, victims, Mm -hmm. right? That whole narrative, pretty prevalent. You see another example is all the settlements that are illegal under international law, that every time I I go there, there's a new 
you know, new settlement. Mm-hmm. And they're usually on tops of hills, mm-hmm. right? And so you go in and you look at the landscape and the new buildings on tops of hills, you know, are settlements and they're illegal. You know, what does it mean that our tax dollars, I think it's still the case that they get the biggest amount of foreign aid, U.S. foreign aid, Mm -hmm. that comes mostly in the form of military aid. And they are one, you know, they're a weapons um, producer as well, Mm -hmm. right? And I think if people in the U.S. could actually see and experience the occupation, even with our passports, it would just kind of blow your mind, actually. And so, you know, I challenge people to go and see for yourself. Don't just, you know, listen to us pro-Palestinian types, in quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, but go and, go, go and find out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Again, it is just one of those, frankly, in so many, especially social justice spaces, maybe not so much decolonial spaces, um, but one of the weakest links of solidarity where you just see Palestinian folks falling by the wayside in terms of especially, right, uh, organizing spaces that are reliant upon foundation funding. Mm -hmm. If it's, right, an unpopular issue, just seeing where people's solidarity praxis falls short. And so especially, again, for those of us, right, that pay taxes in the U.S. or for U.S. citizens, talk about an invitation to deepening our integrity, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you see the Congress or New York State, for example, passing legislation that says, you know, if you participate in BDS, you know, you're not going to get funding. Like, Mm -hmm. that's the state, right? It's not a private organization that's taking a stand, but it's the state Mm -hmm. taking a stand like that. Mm -hmm. It's kind of mind-boggling. And I don't know how often in the history of this country that kind of thing has happened, but it's certainly alive and universities, mm-hmm. um, states, the U.S. Congress, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that is trying to prevent people from joining BDS. Right. Uh, so the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, in case any listeners might not be familiar with that acronym. And of course, right, so much of the public galvanizing of support for the settler colonial state of Israel has everything to do with this alleged war on terror, right? The war of terror, as some people would more aptly name it. Uh, and so it's really important if you ask me that folks have alternative understandings of genuine security and of peace mm-hmm. that aren't just so consistent with the corporate media propaganda that were fed, especially through Hollywood films, through the militarized entertainment or militainment, so to speak, that we also see in video games and in spectator mm-hmm. sports culture. Could you talk a little bit about how you understand, especially, say, from a feminist perspective, genuine security or peace. Mm-hmm. So I'm part of this you know, network I mentioned before, International Network on uh, Women Against Militarism. And one of the things that we've been talking a lot about from the beginning is what constitutes genuine security. So all our lives, we've been told that the only security is national security, in quotes, And that security always has to be backed up by military power. And what that means, basically, is that, you know, the assumption that nations 
always have enemies, and the only way to keep the enemies away is to use military power, right? That's kind of at this kind of gross, big level. Um, and that that filters down, right, from, you know, the state's military ways and societies are militarized. So the U.S., for example, you have a general who's a former general who's the I think he's the chief of staff or whatever he is in, in a high office in the executive branch of government, right, who has the ear of the president. And you see other military, former military people running civilian and civil society institutions. That means, though, they have a militarized kind of a mindset, right? Their Their whole training and their socialization has been you know, uh, about identifying enemies, assuming that it's a dangerous world, identifying enemies, you know, etc. And again, all this has to do with resources, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that way of thinking about relate social and political relations is that actually it creates incredible insecurity, because there always has to be an enemy, right? If it isn't, you know, this group is some other group. Um, and part of the training is to be able to kill people, the enemy. And the enemy, like if you just even break break it down to community level, right? The enemy is black men mm-hmm. and black women, for example. Mm-hmm. And the police act accordingly, right? Their first reaction is, if they don't, if I don't shoot them, they're going to shoot me, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of this automatic, stupid, um, but terrifying reflex. So what if we thought about security actually as uh, distribution of resources in such a way that it's really equitable, that people, you know, um, have a genuine, strong connection to the physical environment, the natural environment, so that we're going to have clean water and the so-called natural disasters, right? Aren't, are not very natural. The mm-hmm. extreme ways in which the weather uh, has been um, impacted is not natural, right? Mm-hmm. If we had certain a right relationship to nature, then we sure we'd have those, but they wouldn't be of the scale that we've seen this past week, especially in other places. Mm-hmm. We thought about genuine security as ensuring that everybody has a a, a sustainable livelihood and that may uh, and and that's not necessarily wages for labor Mm -hmm. right but rather thinking about livelihood in a bigger sense so that it's about well-being it's about material Mm -hmm. stuff and that you know we can think more collectively about livelihoods right so maybe you know, having more worker co-ops, you know, labor unions, you know, etc. But if you, you know, want to get really idealistic is thinking about production for consumption rather than production for profits, mm-hmm. right? And I think there's some kinds of attempts at this kind of collective unionization, which is you see in places like Oakland and other places, um, what do they call it, co-housing? Yeah. where people get together, but it's usually middle-class people or upper-middle-class people who can afford to, you know, mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so just thinking about material, you know, having adequate material needs met, having sturdy connections to other people, even people who you may consider other, um, but recognizing each other's humanities, having more of um, a, a cooperative economy, you know, a collectivized economy, and thinking about, you know, creativity, art, music, dance, all those things as part of livelihood and well-being too. So it's not just material, it's not just emotional, but there's a whole kind of a spiritual creative part in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. right? And I know it sounds really idealistic, and it is, because you know the first thing people are going to say is, oh, that's too idealistic, and how are you going to get there? And I think we have to have these ideals. We have to have a vision, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we just end up saying, well, there's nothing we can do about it. And, you know, may the best man win. And right. becoming even more individualistic and selfish mm -hmm. and self-centered. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that uh, if you can't beat them, join them. If you've not mm -hmm. even allowed yourself to imagine a revolutionary alternative, then sure, you're mm -hmm. just going to try to get right the biggest piece of the pie that you can, even if mm -hmm. the pie is poisonous and it's killing mm -hmm. you. Sure. Yeah. Nothing like yeah. learning how to cut your losses and actually just yeah. build that alternative world instead of still trying to salvage something that might be irredeemable. Right. And I think, you know, one of the really important jobs for people like you and me, that is people who are really committed to liberatory education, is I think one of our really important jobs is to keep presenting alternative ways of thinking about things. Even as bad as things are out there, especially because things are bad, mm -hmm. saying there are other ways that we can, you know, do this, mm -hmm. right? And have you thought, you know, let's think about this, or have you thought about that? You know, we can even um, invoke, you know, examples of where people have gotten together in the direst of circumstances, not just in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, right? Mm -hmm. For, For, I think... Our, one of our main jobs is to be kind of purveyors of hope yeah. and, you know, alternative ways to think about things. Mm -hmm. I think that's what constitutes really good liberatory education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. And on that note, so I know that you've been on the board of directors of the Highlander Center. Can you share a little bit about your experience with them and what you would like to see education looking like in this moment in history? Mm -hmm. So I'll start by saying that if it hadn't been for the Highlander Center, I may not be sitting where I am. And by that I mean they were such an important force um, during the civil rights era. And it was because of the civil rights movement that I was able to, you know, attend university and, you know, get all the degrees I have and the opportunities, right? If it hadn't been... Who knows where I'd be now? Um, and so there's the kind of the legacy of Highlander, you know, with MLK Jr., Dr. King, and Rosa Parks, and all the civil rights big names being trained to organize and do popular education and stuff at Highlander. But also thinking about how that foundation of the labor movement and the civil rights movement you know, has allowed that place to be 85 years old now as it continues to grow and update, you know, and 
engage in current issues like immigration, for example. I feel incredibly honored to, to be of service to a place that shaped the movement that saved my life and the lives of you know people of my generation uh, and gave us a certain kind of hope and excitement and inspiration right through the movements of the 60s. And so my service to Highlander is really in service of the next generation. They have lots of youth-oriented um, projects. And it's also a way to, you know, kind of, you know, pay back. That is to express my appreciation for the opp- all the opportunities that I've been, you know, given. And so I'm, <laughs> I never thought in life I would be doing this, but... I chair the uh, Resource and Communication Committee of the board. And, um, you know, I thought, oh, my God, I'm not a fundraiser at all. And I was complaining. But I realized that there's something about reframing what we do that helps us put our heads around something that we think we didn't like. So I've become sort of uh, gaining a reputation for being the house party queen, you know, (laughs) where I love organizing and helping people organize house parties, fundraisers. And for me, that's a social act, right? Of course, we want to raise money, but it's about bringing people together. So Highlander gives me this chance to be around people who I never would have met. Um, And there are lots of people connected to the place. You can imagine 85 year legacy. It's social events, you know, the house parties. It's a political event. It's an historic event, too, because it makes us remember, you know, what it takes to have an organization for 85 years, be vibrant Hmm. and still current and lots of contradictions. There's no question about that. You know, it hasn't been a smooth ride all the way for the organization, but Nonetheless, it's been able to really uh, maintain the core of its values, um, mission, purpose, all the, the details may change and things may get updated. And right now is a really important time in the Highlander history. We just um, hired uh, two new EDs. That we call them the co-eds or the co-executive directors. One is um, Ashley Woodard, who is a... African-American feminist organizer who's, you know, done a lot of work. She's um, the first black woman to be in that leadership position at Highlander. And Alan uh, Maxwell Steele, who is a white radical preacher, basically a minister. Hmm. And they together have you know, just been become this formidable administrative, political, managerial team. Uh, and we're very lucky to have them. And so it's really a turning point, you know, for us. And uh, I'm right in the middle of it, and I'm thrilled to be here. Hmm. How exciting. By the way, you know, if you ever want to have <laughs> your students get together at Highlander, that would be a blast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that yeah. suggestion. So many conversations to have with people from different places, sharing yes. strategies and reflections and histories. That's a great idea. Yeah, and it's a beautiful, it's on a beautiful piece of, you know, 800 acres of land mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. just breathtaking in the mountains, mm-hmm. in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine. 
Well, I'm wondering, we've covered so many topics, if there is anything else in closing that you might want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think um, as people who are committed to becoming educated and, you know, in, quote, non-traditional ways and liberatory ways, uh, in ways that are about uh, freedom and, you know, being feminist, I think something that really essential for us to keep in mind is that our study and learning can't just be about critical analysis. There has to be an element of really appreciating what's also working, what's in place, the struggles that people have gone through, and appreciating the possibilities. Uh, I think when we get cynical, the other side is one. So we don't ever want to be cynical. Um, the other thing is, I think this education project and you know being activist, or as the young people say, you know, being woke, um, <laughs> is also fundamentally about being, you know, about being loving, mm. and it's about creating beloved communities as we're in the struggle, as we're in classrooms, as we're having conversations, right, and. Radical love, not the Hollywood, you know, romantic type thing that we're sold a bill of goods about, but a profound kind of appreciation for one another simply because we're human and we've been so um, taught not to love, right? Uh, I'm taught to hate and at best kind of love as a romantic kind of, you know, made up institution, but love of freedom, you know, love of uh, human beings. And I think we have to do the work we do because we love people and the planet. Like that's got to be the main motivation. And well, I don't know if it's got to be that, but it is that for me. So I'll just leave it at that. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful note to close on. Well, thank you so much for all of the reflections and the information that you've shared and for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjalina Thupadia, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comment section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to have on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. Freedom is ours. Freedom is ours.